Episode 37, here we go. No Laugh Track, Acme Comedy Company's official podcast. This is Justin Severson. I'm here with my guest, Will Anderson. That's me. Hello. Hey, what's with that accent? Uh, I'm from Australia. No, come on. Yeah, it's true. And also, the name Will Anderson uh, is not a showbiz name, apparently. Uh, I found this out recently because uh, there was someone who's been in show business for about 50 years whose real name is Will Anderson, but they thought that that was a bad name for show business, so they changed their name to something else. Oh, really? Yeah. Adam West, TV's the Batman. His real name is Will Anderson. No kidding! Yeah. I was reading that going, like, there was part of me that was really thrilled that, like, Batman's name is Will Anderson, and then there was another part of me that was like... That when, wasn't good enough? When Adam West is like, I can get nowhere in show business with a stupid name like Will Anderson. No kidding! Yeah. Oh, I'm actually mad I didn't know that when I was looking stuff up. Uh, I, look, I've, I've had this name for 39 years, and I didn't know it until about two years ago. So. No kidding! Yeah. Will- <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Adam West. Yeah, so yeah. technically I can go around telling people I'm Batman. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's good. Uh, I suppose Adam West is... That's not a bad name to come up with. See, Adam West is a like, no doubt about that. Adam West is a good show business yeah. name. Adam West, but Will Anderson—that's not too bad, is it? No, no, right. I don't think so. No, okay. It sounds very American, right? It's not. No. I'm named after my grandfather's. Uh, William James Anderson is my full name. Uh, so my grandfather uh, built the road that my, I was born on. Uh, well, I wasn't born on the road. I was born in a hospital. <laughs> That's good. I don't want to give people the impression that Australia is so backwards that just <laughs> women are riding along on the back of kangaroos and dropping babies on the road or something like that. But Clear that up, yeah, good. After the war, uh, to resettle the soldiers uh, and sort of rebuild Australian industry, uh, the far, uh, the, some of the soldiers got cheap land, what, what they called soldier settlement land. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the government would give them this land and then they would go and become farmers. So my grandfather, uh, he... And this is James Anderson, my dad's dad. Yep. He built the um, uh, road by hand uh, called Anderson's Road. My dad, Graham James Anderson, has lived on that road for uh, 69 and a half years now. Never moved off Anderson's Road. Yeah. When are you taking over? Right. Well, that, that there was part of that. Like, you know, I was the first person in my family to finish high school. I was the first person in my family to finish university. I was the first person in my family to chuck in university to tell dick jokes to strangers in bars. Right, so, right. <laughs> uh, and there was a time where, for my parents, that was, you know, they would have loved me to take over the farm. And there was always this cloud hanging over my comedy career of, that's great, but when are you going to come back on the farm and, yeah. and milk cows? and. As someone who got up at four o'clock in the morning before school, every morning to go and milk cows before I go to school, my answer was always, "I'm never, I'm never going back." Right. To that. That's the most ridiculous. Uh, there was. A, I remember telling my dad. I said, I, I, "I used to have probably get up about five. I was exaggerating a little bit. I used to have to get up about five to yeah. milk the cows." And I remember telling my dad that uh, the reason that I was never going to go back to the farm was I didn't want to have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and, and milk cows. And and the next year. I got a job doing breakfast radio in Australia, yeah. and I used to have to get up at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I distinctly remember the first morning of work, my dad rang me at four just to tell me he was going back to bed for another hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, dad uh, obviously has a sense of humor. Right. I, he does, actually. Yeah. A very. My father has a... Because people ask, you know, where does the sense of humor come from? People right. always want to know that. Yeah, yeah. Particularly when you come from, you know, the background that I have. Mm-hmm. You know, the first person I met who was in show business was... Me. Yeah. Like, I never, we didn't have a weird uncle who was the town crier, or I didn't know anyone who was in a play. I, I I really just kind of made it up as I went. And so people always ask, you know, were your parents funny or where did it come from? And, 
And I, I never remember them being like laugh out loud funny. Yeah. But I remember in retrospect that my dad in particular was very dry funny. Yeah. Like I remember he he was very good at doing that sort of thing where he would deadpan my friends into I remember one time my friend uh, Mark Howard who's now a, a, quite a famous Australian sports reporter but uh, we were at uh, uh, sort of junior high school together and so we must have been about I don't know 13 or 14 and yeah. he was staying over at my house and we were in the in the corridor in the hallway of the house we were kicking an Australian rules football up and down the corridor and, and how he kicked it into the roof and it smashed a light and a light fell down now this was clearly always going to happen. Yeah. Like it was one of those things that was, from the minute we decided we were going to kick this football in this corridor, this was always going to happen. Something's going to be broken right. when you're done. So he's had to go out to my dad and explain that, you know, he's, he's broken the thing. And my dad just deadpanned it and told him that he had to walk home to his house, which was like 30 miles away. <laughs> and like he was literally halfway down the road before my dad was like, oh, no. oh no. <laughs> so I do remember that sort of stuff. I remember him being very dry. Uh, but I don't really remember them being like, like dad being particularly hilarious. Yeah. My mum, as I got older, as I got into comedy, my mum became funnier. Like she, I think it loosened her up a bit and she felt like she had permission to, I remember, oh God, this was probably about 10 years ago and, oh, maybe even longer. And I was, I was working on uh, a, a radio station in Australia called Triple J. Now, Triple J is our youth broadcasting network. It plays no advertisements. It's sponsored by the government. Okay. And it plays predominantly Australian music, but then sort of alternative music around that. And it's, and it's a really great radio station. And, and you know, for young people, it's, a, it's you know, the best job you can have, really. And so I was working, but it is government-owned, which means that, it or it has a tendency to get political. Sure. And so I remember one morning there was a, a government minister from a conservative government at the time who was accusing the ABC of being biased against the conservative government. Right, right. Which, to be honest, they were because it's public broadcasting. Yeah. Like public broadcasting is by its very nature a left wing idea. Absolutely. Like you know, conservatives think that you know it's the free market and everything can pay for itself. So. Yep. There's only kind of two types of people who work in public broadcasting, I've always said, which is one is people who are working there because they're passionate about public broadcasting and they're willing to make less money to make the sort of uh, work that they want to make. Yep. And then there's people who couldn't be employed anywhere else. <laughs> and it's a mix of both. Sure. Right. So, uh, so this guy, uh, this senator had uh, made this uh, speech and it was on our news, on our radio sh- uh, program and uh, he'd said that the ABC was biased against the government. Right. And I said off the back of the news on the radio, ah, oh, come on, you're just saying that because you're a right-wing pig rooter. Right? <laughs> okay. Which, now, rooter, uh, the Australian term meaning shagger or, you know, yeah. whatever that would be. Okay. Uh, now, clearly, to me, that was just a joke about like trying to say the most outrageously bias thing you could possibly say yeah you know on the topic of bias it seemed like a nice comic premise yeah absolutely but in the heat of that environment it became quite a big national story so it ran on the front page the next day of two of the big national newspapers in australia you know like abc hosts make slur against but and they beat it up to be much something much more than than what it really was. Right. It was like a joke about bias. Yeah. But they just took it on face value and uh-huh. and made it a different story. So for a few days, you know, there was a lot of pressure on me and there was a lot of pressure on the network to the point where they, they rang my parents and asked for a comment. 
And so the journalist asked my mum, are you embarrassed by your son? Uh-oh. Now, firstly, that's a really horrible thing to say to a parent. Like, yeah. it's not her fault that I'm a dickhead on the radio, right? Yeah. <laughs> she raised me well. Like, I'm making some choices. Yeah. Don't You're blame an adult. Her, right? I'm <laughs> yeah. an adult. She can't control anymore. Exactly. Yeah. But, but secondly, and I will love her forever just for this, because this was her quote, and they ran it in the newspaper, which I loved. She said, when he was two years old, I took him to the local shopping mall. I was changing his nappy, his diaper. Right. Uh, I, sorry, I took him to local shopping mall. I was changing his nappy. He did a poo on my face. Nothing he's done since then has embarrassed me quite as much. <laughs> and I that's thought awesome. that was like that's that is, good gear, man. Yeah, yeah. You could, great. We could get you a spot with material like that. Absolutely. So, so I think you know, in retrospect, they they probably both did have a, a pretty good sense of. She already has her closer, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, she probably have to open and close with that. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure what she's going to do in the middle at the moment. But fair enough. I did tell them one time I was trying to pitch a show to them. I used to do quite a lot of early on. Uh, I used to do a whole routine about the ridiculous. Yeah, expressions uh, like you know uh, uh, things like uh, uh, if you didn't close the door, you know, were you born in a barn or right. those those sort of yeah, all those things that your parents would tell you when mm-hmm. you were growing up. And so I used to have a whole routine about the things that my parents said when I was growing up. And it's funny, I have not thought of that routine for twelve years. And when I was trying to give you an example, it was like a fifteen minute bit. And when I was trying to give you an example, then none of them came to mind. Ah. But, uh, but it was a. Uh, they they used to complain that, you know, it wasn't... I mean, it's not a documentary. I had added some comedy to sure. some of the things. And I was always trying to pitch them a show where I would come out and do the routine. And then they would come out and I would interview them about how truthful the routine actually was. And, oh, yeah. and what had actually happened. Because I thought people would really kind of dig that. And oh, they, absolutely. They would get the right of reply, I guess. Yeah, yeah. To the things I was saying. But uh, they, were, they weren't so keen on that. Oh, no. I'm still hopeful. Hey, that would be very, uh, you know, parents are, what, what's the word, endearing. People like that. Right. People yeah. love to see. I think that, you know, I, I do think that if I think of the comedians I love, if I, if there was an opportunity to go and see them do a show and you knew that their parents were going to be on stage as well, you'd love to yeah, know. Yeah, absolutely. What, you know. What what are, what are Louis's parents like? What what are Patton's parents like? Yeah, what, no kidding. What what are Dylan Moran's parents like? I would want to know that they're really the parents, though, and it's not like a prank. Ah, uh, that they've yeah, they've hired yeah. some parents. Yeah, the, yeah. The show. That, <laughs> yeah, you never know. Yeah, playing Louis's parents tonight. <laughs> I know yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bill Cosby. <laughs> Wait a second. I don't see any resemblance whatsoever. <laughs> So how did you? Uh, how did we're here at Acme in yeah. Minneapolis, Minnesota? Yeah. How did you end up? How here did this I get week? here? Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I have been a, a professional. Well, I've been a stand-up. Uh, uh, let's. I don't know how long I've been professional for, but I've been a stand-up for nineteen years now. Uh, uh, well, just coming up on nineteen years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is my nineteenth year of it, and uh, I. Uh, I guess. I, I was always in love with the American tradition of stand-up comedy. Like, w- when you're in Australia, you get a really weird mix of uh, influence, I guess is the way to put it. See, when I grew up, there were no well-known Australian stand-up comedians at all. Okay. Like, the closest that, uh, you know, would have come to it would have been maybe Barry Humphreys, who does Dame Edna Everidge. Oh, but that yeah. would have been as close to wow. an yeah. Australian comedy icon, you know, someone who was doing solo shows and live performance. Then you had an, 
I don't want to say an underclass because these people were very popular, but you had these touring road comedians and there was a couple of really famous guys, a guy called Rodney Root, who still tours today, but very much that old school, very rough and ready, touring the roughest places, you know, heckling and comebacks and dirty songs and okay. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and there was a guy called Cole Elliott who sang sort of dirty you know, songs and stuff like that. And maybe there was someone else as well, but they weren't, you know, there was, oh, there was a guy called Kevin Bloody Wilson. And, you know, <laughs> Kevin Bloody Wilson used to sing, you know, songs like, uh, uh, well, his most famous song, I, I won't drop the C-bomb, but his, famous, his most famous song is Hey Santa Claus, You See, okay. Where's Me Effing Bike. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, like, but it, and they were just like, you know, do your F on first dates. Or that was the sort of, you know, the quality of the material. Sure. Right? Okay. Now, these guys were all popular and some of their stuff is kind of weirdly... When you look back on it now, if you find an Australian and you mention Kevin Bloody Wilson, you know they'll they'll they will burst into a tune of yeah, into a chorus of rooting in the back of the Ute or okay. you know one of his big hits <laughs> because there's some sort of weird affection from our youth. But it wasn't there was no sort of history of comedy in the way that the British have a history of comedy and mm-hmm. then in the way that the the Americans have a history of yeah. comedy. So as a young person who was vaguely interested in comedy, who who, who started to see stand-up on television and, you know, I, I saw Billy Connolly on some talk shows yeah. and stuff like that and I was like, what is this? I want to know more about this. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. And it was so hard. See, I mean, young people these days right. don't yeah. understand what it's like to, I mean, if... If, if I say to you, uh, my favorite comedian in the world is Dylan Boren, and if I say that on this podcast and someone hears that on this podcast and they've never heard of Dylan Moran, by the end of today, they could have gone to YouTube, they could have gone to iTunes, they can go to Wikipedia. You can, by the end of the week, be the world's biggest Dylan Moran fan and expert. Mm-hmm. Because that access, you know, you can access that information. Oh, yeah. But as a kid in a, you know, a small country town... Like you just couldn't, you couldn't even find a Billy Connolly record or a Bill Cosby record or you know, right, any right. of those people who actually were making records at the time. Yeah, let alone a, a George Carlin record or you know something like that. Right, right. So I remember in my teen years uh, when I, I got to about sort of fourteen or fifteen, and and my parent, I was at an age where my parents would finally let me take the three-hour train ride to Melbourne uh, on my own. I remember walking that city, you know, from record store to record store, you know, not looking for, you know, cool albums, although occasionally that was what I was looking for, you know, cool, you know, musical albums, but mostly trying to find comedy. Really? Okay. And so I just would buy whatever I could find. It didn't matter. I would just go to the comedy section and I would go, well, what do you have? And I would take it home and I would listen to it. And I remember... You know, there was things like Monty Python's uh, Life of Brian. I remember yeah. I had the record version yeah. of that before I'd ever seen the movie. Okay. You know, I used to listen to that on a record. And um, I had uh, definitely, there was like a bunch of Cosby stuff. Uh, Bob Newhart. Oh, yeah. Bob Newhart thing. <laughs> I mean, one of the most thrilling things that I've done since I've been here in the in the States is like, you know, play at the Ice House in Pasadena where like some of those albums were recorded on that stage and I couldn't like if you told me when I was 15 years old sitting at home listening to a Bob Newhart record that one day I would stand on the same stage as that album was record. I mean like yeah. it just would have blown my mind absolutely I, I would have punched him in the face <laughs> like, yeah yeah ridiculous uh-huh. right and and then the and then the uh, Billy Connolly in particular uh, and George Carlin and that was pretty much all you could get yeah 
And I would listen to these things over and over and over again. Uh, and it probably drove my parents completely mad, you know, because this was back even when I can't even remember having a set of headphones. I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, I would just put them on and listen to them. Yeah. So I would uh, do that. And then on my 17th birthday, uh, Billy Connolly was playing in Melbourne at the Melbourne Concert Hall in a place called Hamer Hall. About 3,000, you know, seats. Beautiful, beautiful theatre that's that's still there today. And uh, my mum bought me tickets. And she, I went, well, that's how cool I was when I was 17. I went on a date with my mum yeah. <laughs> to see Billy Connolly uh-huh. for my 17th birthday. That reminds me when my mom took me to see Tina Turner in concert. Right. Yeah, when I was about the same age. Yeah. But you didn't turn into uh, you didn't you didn't become the next Tina Turner. No, <laughs> no, it didn't, it didn't it didn't inspire you to be simply the best private dancer. No, <laughs> didn't 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 uh, catch on. I had, we had fun, but <laughs> uh, so Mum and I went to this thing, and we were oh my god, we were we were way up the back, you know, like we you know if there was three thousand people there, we were there was two two two. 2,800 in front of us, you know. You know, this is the same story as by Tina Turner. My mom was so excited she got these tickets and I was going to go. It was at a place downtown Minneapolis here. We were in the upper deck. Yeah, I mean, there were uh, 15,000 people ahead of us. So, same thing. She was so excited we get there, walking up, 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 up. Oh, here are our seats. Yeah, I think she's down there. (laughs) All the Australians will be excited that you brought up Tina Turner, by the way. Oh, really? Tina Turner's... Like got a quite a big career in Australia for two reasons. One, she was in not uh, Mad Max. Mad Max because of that Thunderdome. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> and the second one is that uh, our rugby league competition for years used simply the best as the theme. Like every year when they launched, yeah, you know, they would have Tina Turner singing simply the best. Oh wow! Okay. And like you know all the footage of the you know the big guys right, bashing right. into each other, and <laughs> and she would come out and she would sing at the grand final. Oh and, wow! Okay. Yeah. So. Well, I'm glad I got that in there. <laughs> so I, um, I, I remember sitting there, and it was the first time that I'd seen you know anything like it in right. my life. And he did three hours, I think, or you know two and a half, three hours. And I just remember sitting there the entire time, just thinking, there are people from like 14 to 80 in this room because mm-hmm. he has such a wide fan base. Mm-hmm. And all he's doing for two and a half, three hours is telling stories and swearing and like, and just everybody loves it. There is not one person and he's entertaining a room full of people with nothing more than his thoughts. Yeah. Like there's no set. There's no other actors. Yeah. There's no guitar. There's no, like he's literally doing something that we all do every day for free. Yeah. And everyone's going, you're so good at doing that thing. Yeah. That we have gathered to watch you do it. Yeah. And I, I don't know what it was because I had no, absolutely no uh, reason to feel like this. And I had absolutely no business feeling like this. But I remember sitting in that dark room and looking around and thinking, this is where I want to be. I want to be around this. Yeah. Now, at that stage, I wasn't kind of, you know, I want to be a comedian, although I think there was a part of me that was already thinking that I wanted to be a comedian. But I didn't really know what a comedian was still at that point. And I certainly didn't know if it was a thing you could do, like where I was on the farm or even in Australia. Yeah. But I remember going, this is the most magical thing in the world. I have to be around this, you know. So... 
I was very lucky many, many years later, probably uh, 10, 12 years later, uh, Billy was out in Australia promoting a, a film he had made called The Man Who Sued God. And uh, it was... Oh, now let me think about this. So it was one of those things where they'd done a um, big morning of press interviews. And it's one of those things where he he's in the hotel and then, you know, all the press come in and they've got two hotel rooms. So you set up in one room, he goes into that one. Then like, you know, what they, yep. the other radio station sets up in the other oh, room yeah. and he just swaps backwards and forwards. Mm-hmm. Then they have a break for lunch and then they do it again all afternoon. Yep. So we were the last interview before the lunch break. And then he was going to a lunch, you know, with some people who hadn't got to interview him. Uh, but we're going to have like a sort of a round table sort of he was going to have lunch and just entertain them and they'd write their stories out of that. I guess they were like newspaper press and TV and stuff sure. like that. So it's the final interview of the day. We did the interview. I didn't mention any of this. And then my co-host took Billy aside at the end and said, look, you know, Will would never tell you this story, but, you know, he's you know, quite a well-known comedian in Australia now and the reason he got into comedy and kind of, you know, recap that story. And, and Billy to his credit, like at least pretended that he was interested in that and so invited us to come to this lunch with him. He said, look, there's going to be a lot of boring people that I, you know, don't want to talk to. Why don't you come and, you know, know, have lunch with us? Yeah. That'll kind of, that'll be fun. So, of course, you know, I cancelled anything else that I had to do that day and I've got there and not only had he invited us to lunch, but... He had saved the seat right next to him for me. Look at that. Right. So I had this lunch. And of course, I I spoke to my mum afterwards, rang her the minute the the lunch had finished to tell her this story. And I remember um, she said to me, she goes, yeah, what did you talk to him about? And I said, you know what? I didn't really get to talk to him about much because what I'd forgotten was he's a comic. So the minute we sat down... We just started talking about comedy, yeah. you know, like comics do. So he was asking me what the scene was like, you know, how it was going for me. We started talking about good gigs, bad gigs, yeah. you know, making terrible taste jokes about things that were, you know, in the news, that dark humor that comics have when they're together. And, and it, was, it was like any comedians talking backstage. It just got into that rhythm to the point where we were probably not being... Uh, like you know, we were a bit. Mono- I was monopolising his time okay. a little bit, and there's all these other people at this lunch. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I've told him a particular, uh, particularly macabre joke about nine eleven. Okay. Because that was at the time we were. T- yeah. Look, and no disrespect to anyone, but you know, when comedians are, <laughs> oh, you know, that's yeah. what they do. Of so course. I have told him this joke and. He has roared with laughter, you know, that big sort of booming from the... It was the greatest, you know, sound I'd ever heard in my I life, bet. you know. But to make it even better, uh, there's, this, there's this guy who's been an entertainment reporter in Australia for like 30 years, and his name Richard Wilkins. And he's a guy who, at the peak of being... Like, imagine Ryan Seacrest... 30 years from now. Okay. Right? Yeah. But if Ryan Seacrest has kept being Ryan Seacrest for all that time, except as he's gradually got older, it's gradually got sadder that it, he's still wearing a leather jacket and still yeah. thinks that he's... That's Richard Wilkins, okay. right? Uh-huh. So at one stage, he was the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. You know, like they, the, the like Cindy Lauper would come to Australia and she'd have a torrid affair with Richard Wilkins. You <laughs> okay. know, that like that was the sort of, you know, right. he had this swashbuckling rep. But then, of course, he's still the guy in the leather jacket and the mullet, you know, yeah, yeah. at 65. Oh, no. That's the guy he is now. <laughs> so Richard, 
as Billy is laughing, has leaned in on the table and just said, Tell us another one, Billy. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> oh, no, no, right. no. To which Connolly, mid-laugh, like, has just, like, gone, <laughs> leaned back, put his arm over his face, and just gone, what a cockhead. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, like, it was one of the most, oh, it was just amazing. Yeah, was, you were in. Right. That's great. So um, I remember seeing Billy at 17 and thinking, you know, I want to run away and join the circus. This is... This is what I, I want to do with my with my life, but I had no idea how to do that. Like, comedy wasn't an industry in Australia at, at that point, and I I wouldn't have known where to start or if it was even a thing you could do. So, I uh, I didn't want to let down my parents. Um, I didn't want to embarrass them. They had worked so hard. They weren't um, wealthy people, you know. They're farmers, right. and and they had I had been lucky enough to go to a local private school because i was on a, a scholarship but they had still that had even still stretched them like to pay for you know things like uniforms and and just the general day-to-day of being in a school like that that wasn't covered by my academic scholarship right. so i'd finished school quite well and I, you know, I got some good offers to to university and i felt like i owed it to my parents to 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 go and you know do something sure so i uh I, I, I studied as a journalist. I have a, a journalism degree and uh, I worked as a journalist for while I was studying because, um, again, my parents couldn't afford to pay for me to go to university. So um, I paid for my own education and I worked full time while I, I, I was studying and and worked in the, the Canberra Press Gallery, which is like the equivalent of our Washington Press Gallery or whatever, like at Parliament House, where the Parliament is. I, I worked there as a sort of, you know, I was a copy boy at the start and then sort of worked my way up to be writing some articles and stuff like that. And so when my degree finished, um, I'd been at the paper for a couple of years and it was time for me to leave Canberra. And I just thought, well, I feel like I've, I feel like I've done this. I finished my degree. And I did really well, and I feel like I've got a job, and I've shown that I can, that I can work. Yeah, you can do that. Now it's time for me to go and do something like what I really want to do. Yeah, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing something that I'm good at just because I'm good at it. I'd yeah. rather go and try to do what I want to do. Yeah. So I moved to Melbourne and started trying to work out how to do comedy. Right. And where was the place? To, oh, I do have one question about you're saying about uh, when you're at the table with Billy Connolly and all yeah. these people, you're sort of monopolizing the conversation and getting all the laughs, the two of you swapping stories. Uh, when peop- <clears throat> when the articles came out, you know, the, the next day or later that day or whatever, did anybody write about you? No. No. They no. left that out? No, none okay. of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wish. And this son of a bitch, Anderson, wouldn't stop talking. I did get, uh, there was one photo that had me, like, you know, where they'd taken a photo of him and I was in it, which was because I, I see, I, as I've got older, I am much less cool. I guess as most people are, you realize that there are so many times in your life where you're like, I wish that I got a photo, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, no, no, I'm trying to be cool. Right. I'm trying to be like, yeah, just me and Billy hanging out. Yeah. I'm not going to get a photo. Yeah. But of course, I wish I got a photo. Of course. Right? Yeah. And if anyone's listening to this, get a photo. Yeah, just yeah. Just get it. Yeah. Don't worry. He doesn't care. Yeah. He's, people want to get photos with him all the time. Yeah. Like, he'll either say yes or no, mm-hmm. get a photo, right? I wish I got a photo. But there was one in the, the, you know, one of the papers had taken where you could make out about half of my head. Oh. So for a while, that was like, 
yeah, up above my computer in the office. Was oh, like, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, I would do the same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I moved to Melbourne, uh, which was like at that stage the home of the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I guess, had been going for about maybe eight or ten years mm-hmm. at that point and was starting to become a, you know, quite well-known mm-hmm. festival. And so Melbourne had a bit of an industry that was, you know, growing around the festival and, you know, there were some cool rooms around town. And and so I did what, you know, everybody does in that situation, which is you, you know, find out where they're doing, you know, new new, new comedy and, and those sort of things. And I started going to rooms and, and watching people do comedy and, and thinking, well, do you think I could, could I do this? And I started, my first gig was at a place called uh, the Espy Hotel, the Esplanade Hotel, but the Espy, that's what they used to call it. And they used to have a Sunday afternoon, New Comics Day. So they'd run it at three in the afternoon on a Sunday. But this pub's, uh, it's uh, it's Bayside, so um, St Kilda Beach in Melbourne, which is popular inner city beach. Okay. Uh, they have a, um, th- so this pub on a uh, Sunday afternoon would get a lot of people kind of, it would have that crowd of people that had the big Saturday night and were having like a Sunday recovery session or people who were just having a... So it was perfect for new comedy because the room was kind of billed as a... You just come in, you have some drinks, you watch a bit of comedy. Like it was very relaxed. Everyone knew what it was. It wasn't like a regular comedy night where there was that sort of, when is this going to get good? There was two <laughs> halves. People would often just come for one half or the other half and you get a new crowd for... You know, it was that sort of thing. It was mostly full, you know, and it would really? have, they'd probably have eighty or a hundred people there on a on a Sunday. They'd always have a pro host. Were they charging admission for that? Five dollars, maybe. Okay. So it was it was great because they charged admission, so the audience paid enough attention, but they didn't charge so much that they wouldn't come. Yeah. Right. Okay. You know, which is always that fine balance. I think you know, free gigs can be horrible because the audience have not invested yeah. anything in the show. Yeah. So. Uh, they would always have a pro uh, MC. So, like, they had someone, you know, experienced enough that if someone had really bombed or if someone had, like, you know, if they needed to get the night, you know, someone could come out and do it, you know, a bit and kind of get the crowd back. And Yeah, yeah. But I think sometimes the crowd went as much to see people bomb as they did because it was always a good mix. You'd see somebody be great. You'd see someone bomb and... And in some ways, let's let's not be honest that some people don't go to NASCAR to see crashes. Of like, course, yeah, you want to see them ride fast, you want to see them crash. Yeah, well, and it's a great day if both happen. Yeah, <laughs> like I've gone and seen some hockey since I've been in America, and if they, if at some stage people don't punch each other in the head, I'm disappointed. I did not. Yeah, that's not a game of hockey. It's right. Yeah, I, I have a uh, one of my many jobs. I have a part time job working at the uh, Minnesota as a professional hockey team, the Wild. Right, and I work over there selling beers. Cold beer here. Walking up and down right. the stairs. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I know. Uh, that's the thing to get people off their seat. Right. When there's a fight, everyone stands up. Yeah. Grandma to the little kid. Everybody wants to see a little blood. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think there's an element of that with comedy. And I, I don't mind that. I always think that sometimes, you know, uh, top comedians can make comedy look too easy. And people start to think it is easy. You know, sometimes I always think on a comedy night that they should have to send out someone who makes it look really bad nah. first, just so that everyone's like, oh my God, this is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so it was, a, it was a brilliant day. And I used to have about like 10 or 12 acts on. So I went down for three weeks in a row because uh, my attitude was this. I knew I would not be the best person who was on. Mm-hmm. I was very aware that 
when I was starting out, I wasn't really one of those people who was under the illusion that, you know, I'd just be brilliant and, you know, everything would be great. Right. I just didn't want to be the worst, you know? I didn't want to be the one that everyone talked about on the way home in the car about how horrible I was. No. So, I, I went down for about three weeks in a row and I watched the show. And my thing was, I always thought if, if there was each week, if there was three people that I thought that I would be better than, then I would do it. Because I always thought that people might remember the three worst, but like by the time you get to fourth worst, you're just <laughs> vaguely in the middle of people who are unmemorable, right? Yeah, I can see that. You remember the three best, you remember the three worst. Yeah. Everyone else is just yeah, yeah, yeah. fodder in the middle. Uh-huh. Little did I know that like now 19 years into it, often you can be the headliner and the best and people still don't remember your name or <laughs> know who you are or tell you a joke that the opener told that they thought well, you told. Like, that's alcohol. Right, exactly. <laughs> But back then, I thought that people remembered every bit of it. So mm-hmm. I went down three weeks in a row, and I remember thinking that, uh, no, it's okay. There's definitely people here that I think I, I will be, be you know, better than. Mm-hmm. So I went I went and asked the guy who ran it, uh, you know, if I could get on. And there was a couple of weeks waiting. So I still had a few more weeks, and I went away, and I really worked on my material. And, I mean, looking back on it, I had a couple of, you know, it's five minutes, like, you know, most sort of open, right. open spots. I had a couple of, yeah, re- really good jokes. In fact, one joke that I used almost for the first probably year and a half I did stand-up was in that first set. And then I had one terrible, hacky, like hacky, hacky, horrible hacky, like can't believe that I even thought it was appropriate to do a hacky joke like that. <laughs> and then I had just had some rubbish, you know, some yeah. things that I thought were funny that were, yeah, they were they were set up. They were punchlines. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but, but you know, for a, for a first spot, enough. Enough that when I did my first gig with the enthusiasm of, you know, doing the first gig and with, you know, I think maybe I'd watched a lot more comedy than, you know, some of the people who were doing it. I at least had some sense of how it was meant to work. Sure. I'm sure some people just show up because all their friends tell them they're funny. Right. And they don't know really. And then they tell a funny story or something. Yeah. My stuff had some structure in it. Like I had an awen- I, uh, like I had a not a great callback, but I had a callback in there, which I did, did not know that's what it was. I okay. didn't, but I had listened and you know heard enough comedy that I realized that if you said something early that was funny, and then you were able to bring that back in another context at the end, that the audience would yeah. enjoy that. Uh-huh. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll put one of those in. Yeah. Right. So there was some, there was some like elementary sort of structure there. Mm-hmm. I was. It's funny, I was talking, this is a good name drop, but I was talking uh, years later with John Cleese. Mm. I was doing a, a show with John Cleese and I was, we were speaking about, uh, I was talking about writing stand-up and he was talking about, you know, writing sketches and we were just talking about different ways of writing and he always said that what he thought one of the greatest ways to learn how to write was you took, just take one of your favourite, like, you know, because a lot of books available like how to write jokes or blah, 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 but I'm not... I'm not sure that any of that stuff is really, I don't know, it feels a little bit too structured for me. But obviously in comedy, there's a lot of structure within what you do that, you know, is is important. There are are reasons that things can be funnier in threes or that, you know, like, yeah, the way that you put things together like callbacks or any of those sort of things can work. Um, So he said this, and I thought this was, I wish I'd known this at the time. It was kind of what I did, but I didn't do it in the way that he said, which was, he said, Find a comedian, if you want to do comedy, find a comedian who you think your style might be like. Find your favorite routine of that comedian 
and watch it and learn it. Just don't think of anything else yet. Just watch it and learn it by heart. Learn that routine by heart. Mm -hmm. Then go away and grab a piece of paper and write it down because then you will see how something you've seen as a finished routine is actually structured. You'll get a sense of... You know, like, so instead of going the other way, which is taking the structure and then trying to build on it, take something you've seen as a complete thing where you can't see the structure because the greatest routines you can't see the structure in. Then take them away, put them on paper, and you'll start to say, oh, this is what he's doing here. Like, he uses a lot of topper lines or he's using a lot of, or he's like, yeah, started with this and then brought it home strong here or, or whatever it is that, you know. And I thought, I guess, without having done it to that detail because I'd watched a lot of comedy and absorbed a lot of comedy you know my brain was starting to to do that anyway so there was some some little bits of structure in there but that's interesting so I did this uh, I did this set and uh, it went okay like you know there's a there's something about doing a first uh, your your first spot and particularly if you have a good uh, you know host a good MC who you know who says it's your first spot like the audience you know, mostly the audience want to see you do well first yeah. time, you know? Turns out, second time, they don't necessarily want to see you do well, <laughs> as I learned a couple of weeks later when I went back a bit cockier and thought I was going to kill again and yeah, yeah. suddenly learned some harsh comedy lessons. Yeah. But, but the first gig went well enough that I went, that I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this again. And as I said, the second didn't. Uh, so I went back a couple of weeks later doing pretty much the same set. But... I learned a really important lesson, which was it's not always the words. You know, sometimes it's... The first one, I was probably nervous and vulnerable and, you know, like, yeah, the audience sided with me. Mm -hmm. Whereas the second one, I strode out with cockiness and confidence and like, this is hilarious what I'm telling you and (laughs) and they didn't. You know, they immediately were like, nah, Uh. fuck this guy. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we're going to bring him back down to level, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So that was a really valuable lesson in itself was that, you know, it's not just the jokes. It's it's how you're doing the jokes, yeah. how you're connecting with the audience. Absolutely. You know, like you're the surfer, but they're the ocean, you know. And oh, yeah. like, you know, if it's good waves, then, you know, even an idiot can catch some good waves. But sometimes the waves aren't good. And then, then it's up to your skill to see how you catch the mm-hmm. waves, you know. Mm-hmm. And you've got to work with the waves, you know. It doesn't matter how good your jokes are if you're crashing into the wave every time. That's so true. I... Uh, I learned that and I was thrown by that. Like like any comic who dies, yeah. you you're like, Oh, this is this is horrible. This is the most horrible feeling I've ever experienced. Why are they so mean to me? Why? Yeah. And you know, and it's not just you don't and of course you're not like you don't think, Oh my god, like they didn't like my jokes and I made some mistakes. No, you're like, every everything I've done in my life is wrong. No. You know, they hate me. I hate myself. They've seen the real me. <laughs> They've seen right into my soul, the person that I hate. I've let down my parents. I've let down my family. I should go. be picking eggs. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. That is exactly what I thought. Yeah. And, and I nearly walked away then. And I probably would have always found my way back to it, but... I really did consider not doing it again because I thought, oh, well, I tried it. It went really well once, you know, mm-hmm. and then it didn't go well, but I tried it. I went and tried comedy and maybe being on stage isn't what I'm meant to be. Maybe just being around comedy is what I'm meant to be, yeah. you know? There's other... I mean, it's not like you have to be a comedian to be in comedy, you know? I could have a great club. I could, you know, write about comedy. I was a journalist. I could have been become a 
comedy journalist. Sure. I could have written books about comedy. I could have, you know, worked for a festival. I, you know, I could have been a manager. Like, there's a million ways, like, you can be around comedy and be part of comedy that are as important as, you know, the bit where you stand on stage and tell the jokes. Yeah. Uh, but I had a, a friend uh, who I'd met uh, after my first gig and and she'd seen a little bit of comedy. She knew a little bit more about comedy than I did and she just said, look, if nothing else, do one more because then you've got a, you know, then you've got a clear decision. Yeah. Like at the moment it's 50-50. Yeah, best right? two or three. Right. Yeah. She said, at least come back and do one more and then if you walk away, you've got like, you go, okay, right? Yep. And I came back and I prepared properly for the third one and I'd been humbled by sort of the second one and, and the third one went well enough that, well, 19 years later I'm on a couch at the Acme Comedy yeah, Club in go. Minneapolis. Yeah. But, so uh, so then for years I really um, – look, I won't go through the whole thing, but I, I, I wanted to answer your first question was, you know, how, do, how did I come to be here, which is I really started then – like my comedy um, taste uh, had got really uh, yeah. There's a lot more access to comedy by that stage. Uh, people like uh, Will Durst and um, oh, yeah. Bill Hicks and people like that were coming out to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I was getting to see people who were doing stuff that that I really responded to. Like you know that I was like, oh, this is the sort of comedy that I really like, and I was able to get a lot more of George Carlin's stuff and Richard Pryor's stuff and and they were the comedians that I was like, oh, these guys are talking about things that are interesting, outrageous and yep. like provoking and, you know, in long form. You know, it's not just a collection of jokes, yeah. but these guys are doing like, you know, here's an hour or here's, you know, these big stories or here's this. And guys who were coming alive in that medium. Like, you know, I mean, I like Richard Pryor's movies, but, <laughs> you know, Richard Pryor's a standout was where, yeah. You know, he was Richard Pryor. Absolutely. And I'd seen George Carlin in things, but George Carlin is a stand-up. And yeah. and so after I had had my career in Australia, I mean, well, you know, like I, hopefully I still have a career in Australia, but mm-hmm. when I got to a point where I was like, okay, well, I want to go and do some work overseas, uh, most Australians traditionally would always go to the United Kingdom because it's easier to work there. And I, I just always wanted to come to America because my comedy heroes were – mostly Americans like America I don't know if America is even quite aware of this I, I, I sometimes think that stand-up comedy is a is is America's greatest art form because if you look at it the respect that stand-up comedy has in this country mm-hmm. like the way that it is revered both as social commentators but also a stand-up comedian hosts the Oscars yeah. Most years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you your tonight show hosts are stand-up comedians. Mm-hmm. You know, like people discuss, you know, in public the the idea of Louis doing an hour every year. You have specials on Comedy Central. People are very comedy literate. They understand the idea of stand-up comedy. There's uh, still in Australia, even after all this time, I will do shows and people will come up to me and say that's the first time I ever saw stand-up comedy. Wow. That's a much less common thing here. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you don't have to spend the first five minutes of your set explaining to them what stand-up comedy is, you know? <laughs> Which sometimes I still feel like I'm like, this is what it is. Oh, you know, no. this, is, this is what it is. So, um, you know, like after 9-11, it's a great example. Like that city waited until Letterman felt it was okay to laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember people talking about, mm-hmm. they're like, when Dave says that it's and, okay to that laugh. And Saturday Night Live. Right. Yeah. That's what they looked for. Mm-hmm. 
That's that's when the healing started. Yeah. When the, and so if you're in an industry, if like if that's why wouldn't you want to be around that? That's where I wanted to be. So about three years ago, uh, when I was finally in a position, you know, back home where my career could be sustained with less time spent in Australia, because the thing that was always really important to me was not like Australians have given me the greatest like a life much greater than I could have ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Like literally my career has been so much more wonderful than if, you know, if you'd said to me, how, how, sh- how would this work out? So I was always very, very conscious of this idea of, you know, don't be one of those, you know, asshole people who's like, right, well, thanks for the last 19 years, but screw you guys. Uh, yeah, you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> right, no. I don't want to be that guy. But also I-, I felt like it was counterproductive to be that guy because – I already have the things I want back home. Like part of like what I like about stand up is, like I mean, this year at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I will do my 18th different hour that I've done in my career. Wow! Because every year in Australia, I go to that festival and I do a month of a new hour, and then I tour it. Like these days, I tour it, you know, around the country and around the world. But but back then, like you know, the first four or five years, that was the only place I was doing yeah you know, that hour, and I'd work it up, and then I'd play it in the clubs and stuff the rest of the year. But mm-hmm. You know, that's what you want. You want a place where you can just put your ideas out and there's an audience for it. So so I, I would never want to give that up. But I finally got to a point where I could manage that in a shorter period of time, which enabled me to then spend the rest of my time, you know, doing some of those other things I'd always wanted to. So I'm kind of glad that it happened now because I feel like as a performer, I'm in a much better... I, I think I was a person who found my voice quite late. Yeah. You know, I, every comedian you'll talk to, you know, will talk to you about that idea of that essentially the whole, you know, secret of comedy is just trying to find your voice. And, oh, yeah. It's you know, amazing how, pe- how when people are honest and say how long it actually took. I mean, realistically, like, my, like, and maybe I've still got, and hopefully I've still got layers and levels to go. I hope that I do. I mean, I think Louis is always the great example. I mean, he's a guy who did a different style of comedy for 20 years. Yeah. And then went, no, no, this is not for me anymore. I'm going to... You know, do what I'm doing now. So I reckon about three years ago, I remember putting out a DVD and it was kind of like a best of up to that point. And I really used that as a, uh, like a line in the sand. Okay. And I went, well, that's it. Yeah. You know, that part of my career is done and I'm going to like really work on, yeah, trying to take this to a different level. And I always think that it's like, uh, you know, early on, and I think it's good to, wear your influences on your sleeve. You can't, you know, I mean, Nirvana were influenced by the Pixies and by the Beatles and Kurt Cobain would unashamedly say that and did say that. But at the same time, he managed to eventually, like, you know, find a a sound of his own. You know, like there's a, my argument would be that Oasis never stopped sounding like the Beatles. Right. They wrote some great Beatles songs, (laughs) but at the end of the day, that's all they ever did. They didn't quite, and I think as a comedian, there was a lot of my career that I was Oasis. You know, like I was writing good jokes and they were my jokes, but they were my jo- my interpretation of all my influences, if okay. you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And I'm like, well, what is it that, are, you know, wh- what are the jokes that only I can tell? Yeah. Like what are the jokes that, you know, won't fit in anybody else's mouth and in anybody else's perspective? What yeah, are the that- things that are just, you know, me? Yeah. And... And so I really only feel that's been the last three or four shows for me that I, 
I feel that I can confidently say, and look, you know, not 100% still. Like, I still think I have routines that are much more indicative of where I hope to keep going than, than others. I found even touring a little bit in the US because there are some things that don't quite translate for me. I have reached back just for a little, you know, to maybe put a joke or two into something or whatever. And I, and, and it's like, it's like you put on an old pair of pants and you're like, these pants used to fit me so well. And now they just don't go with anything that, else that I'm wearing, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're comfortable, but they don't, they don't match all the other stuff that I've got on now. Yeah. So I, uh, I feel like it was a good time to come. I, it was a good time for me to, you know, come over and mostly I firstly went to sort of LA and New York and San Fran and sort of, you know, the sort of places that you would go and, mm-hmm. and then uh, I really just wanted to start going out on the road and, and, you know, you know, playing clubs because to me, the best way to learn how to do this properly and to get, A, to get people to like what I do here, but B, for me to learn what is going to work here and what is not going to work here is to to play clubs, you know? And they've got to be clubs that aren't in LA and New York. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because LA and New York isn't America, right? This is America right, right. here. I don't think this is quite America either. I feel like this is easing me into America. <laughs> like, I feel, like, you know what? It's funny when you... Uh, and this is certainly not pissing in anyone's pocket. Is that an expression you guys have? Pissing in your pocket? No, that's... No. no. Uh, false flattery, I guess, is what it means, but not to piss in your pocket. That's right. very Australian. I've gone very Australian there. But uh, I I was telling my friends uh, about, you know, some of the clubs I was uh, playing on, on this little uh, tour, and I'd... I was in, the, in Vancouver for the comedy festival last weekend, and then I have a week week here, and then I'm at uh, Comedy Works in Denver next week. And you can always tell, like before a comedian friend has ever even said, uh, like said anything, you can tell by the expression in their eyes when you mention a club whether it's going to be a good experience or a mm-hmm. bad experience. Yeah. And every single person I said is that you're going to love Acme. Yeah. So, I feel like it was one of those things where like, it's a nice way to ease myself into there you America. Go. You know, like it's going to be a lot harder weeks and shows than than coming here. And that was, I mean, I've only done one show at this point. You know, when we're talking yep. a Tuesday night show, and look, the room was half full. You know, on a Tuesday night, no one was here to see me. Obviously, like I mean, no one knows me here. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's just a sign that this club is a good club that people will come out and you know on a Tuesday night, yeah, and just see who's here and see who's here, yeah. And not just see who's here, but be such a amazing comedy audience. Like, I mean, it was a, just a great, easy, fun gig last night. You know, we had a, I mean, a good sign was there was a there was a woman, and I'm 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 going to point her out to you, but obviously no one at home will be able to see this. But uh, see that chair right there, do about five rows back. Yeah, passed out asleep. Oh, like passed out asleep. Everybody else is having a great time. Now, normally, if someone was like passed out asleep like that, I would. If I was in a new place like this, I would avoid drawing attention to it because there's part of me that thinks, well, if the audience goes, someone's asleep, they start to think, what does she know that we don't? (laughs) Maybe we're all wrong. Maybe the fact that we're all laughing and having a good time, maybe this girl has the right idea, you know? Yeah. But I was so confident and having so much fun that instead I did what I would do back home, which was embrace that situation oh, great. you know good, so good. i w- walked off stage with the microphone you I, started, did. I started doing the show right next to her because no, i you... thought 
I thought it would be really funny if she woke up like as I was oh, I love doing it. the set. Right? I love it, yeah. But after a while, she was like, I'm like, how soundly does this... I mean, who goes to comedy for a sleep, right? But how soundly does this woman sleep? So uh, eventually, I literally just leant down and yelled in her ear, wake up! Because I thought... But again, she didn't wake up. Oh, my God. So now I'm starting to think, is she dead? Oh, like, no. if I've come to Minneapolis and I've killed someone on the first night, like, <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted to kill. Like, but, <laughs> but literally, I don't want to kill. You know, I don't want that. Yeah, he didn't die. The audience did. Um, and I said to my friends, I said, what's going on? They said, oh, no, no, she's like, this is, this is her party trick. She, she goes out. She goes too hard. She passes out. And like, at the end of the show, her boyfriend had to fireman lift her out of oh, the building no. like it was like he was running away from a fire right and so anyway we we did that but the the whole point of that was that that's how comfortable <laughs> i felt you know i, I felt great. so comfortable and that's always a sign that it's a, a it's a great room you yeah know? it makes you feel like you don't have to you know do the, the audience isn't there going dance monkey boy they're mm-hmm. they're going well we want this to be special and i always think that you know We'll all remember that show now. Oh, like, if we ever absolutely. see each other again. Like, maybe there was only 60 or 80 of us here or whatever it was. But, you know, I loved it. And if anyone ever says to me, hey, I was at that show in Minneapolis and do you remember the girl felt... I will remember that forever. Of course. And, and I love that about this job is that, you know, it, it, it can be so unique and you can have those sort of moments. Yeah, so, I love that you went out in the crowd. I wish I would have been here. Right. It's But it is one of those things where I wouldn't have done it without their permission, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was, oh, yeah. It was fun. There was a there was an old fella down the front, and when I first walked out, I was like, "Oh, you know," because he was. I mean, when I say old fella, but it would have been mid 60s, 70, I reckon. Sure. And I kind of was like, "Oh, like if I said, there's lots of old people who come to see me back home, but they all know what I'm like. Yeah, they've already made the choice. Yeah, you know enough about me that you're not going to come and see me if you're going to be offended by, by what I have to say. But here, I'm a little bit more worried, like. You know, you don't want people walking out on your your first night in town. So she's not in the front row, right? <laughs> and he, uh, but he again was delightful. He had this band aid on his face, and I did this whole thing about you know, like it was his tribute to Nelly, and he obviously had all his friends in prison, and he was like giving them respect. And the whole time, like the audience is laughing, but I <laughs> he can has tell no he idea. had no idea, no idea who you're talking like, who's about. Nelly, <laughs> what are you talking about? But he was so delightful about it oh and, that's you know, great into the dave his name was i'll give him a shout out if there you, you go if you haven't listened to the podcast though <laughs> if you know what a podcast is so, <laughs> sorry dave if i've offended you but uh so um so that's that's kind of how i came here i'm uh you know i'm i'm getting out and about and trying to you know do some comedy uh around america so i'm, I'm going where they have me is there a uh, do you have a home in the united states are you staying i mean are you only on the road do you have a place where do you unpack your suitcase? So, I have a, a place where I keep my stuff uh, in Australia, which is in Sydney. That's where I technically live. But I'm there about uh, about three. I was there three months last year uh, of the entire year. Uh, the, the other two months I was in Australia were you know two and a half months were on the road. So you know, obviously Melbourne Comedy Festival, Brisbane Comedy Festival, Adelaide Fringe Festival, which is what I go back to after this. So I do. Uh, once I finish uh, in Denver, I'm back in LA for a week, and then Adelaide Fringe, Brisbane Comedy Festival, Melbourne Comedy Festival. Wow! Uh, then I go to London and do shows, which is something I normally do in May. So I've got two weeks at the Soho Theatre in London, and uh, off the back of that, I'll do some of the UK festivals. So 
Last year I did Kilkenny and Ireland, but this year I'm thinking about maybe doing Brighton or one of the ones that I haven't done before that I can kind of fit in with that. Then I come back to the States again. So previously I had a, a place in LA because I was mostly doing stuff around LA, the rooms. And, but this trip back, I was like, well, I'm on the road. I, there's not really any point, you know, having somewhere. Yeah. So I'm living out of a suitcase. Wow. and. Even when I was in LA, because I was in LA for a few weeks doing some shows, I was just living in a hotel in LA. And I'm like, I could be one of these crazy people who only just lives in a hotel. <laughs> like, I'm in a hotel most of the time. They come, they clean my room every day. There's a mini bar. It's not that bad a lot. Yeah. What else do you need? Right. What else do you really need? Wow. Wow. I, that's got to be different, just living out of that suitcase. Well, I, 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 it is one of those things where it's amazing how little you actually need because I'm a person that over the years I mean I have a home and you know a car and a bunch of you know like I have you know I have more DVDs than Blockbuster these days (laughs) you know I have things that I don't need that I thought I needed you know you know when you have a house and you're there all the time you think oh I need this I need this appliance for my kitchen I need this you know thing at home I can't live without this thing but then you go back to properly being on the road. And I've spent the last three months living out of one suitcase that has to fit under a 23 kilogram, <laughs> you know, so I don't have to make extra baggage on the road. And, and I don't need anything else. I mean, it's easier these days when computers and stuff have meant that you can load up your favorite television show or whatever to, you know, you have access to the world through the internet yeah. and, and stuff like that. But there's, an, there's actually a, a nice simplicity to you, – you're amazed at what you – you, you don't need. You can survive with that. Yeah, I, maybe I should do that. That would help me purge some of my collection of junk that I have. Right. Well, I'm actually thinking about opening a Borders now that everything is shut down. Now that all bookstores and DVD stores have basically shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my house at home is is just full of books and DVDs. So I may well be. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I may well be the next Borders. There you go. I want to ask you a couple of questions okay, that are cool. just about uh, like Australian things. Uh Stephanie Rice, do you know you know who that is? I do, yeah. Have you ever met her? Uh, and then we'll tell people who she is. Uh, Stephanie Rice, uh, an Australian swimmer. Yes. Uh, are you in love with Stephanie Rice? Uh, well, my girlfriend might listen to this one, so I'm not going to say I'm right. in love. But, uh, you know, I feel like she is very attractive. Right, yeah. okay. Um, well, unfortunately, you're not her type. Because uh, you're not a brain-dead sports person. Yeah. She has a real habit of, like, dating, like, meathead, like, Australian footballers, basically. Okay. And uh, I can't. I don't think she's the, the smartest person in the world, it's fair to say. But you don't have to be smart to swim up and down a black line on the bottom of a swimming pool. It's not hard. So, Stephanie Rice, uh, she won, uh, she was... She won a couple of gold medals. Uh, Two thousand eight in Beijing, right? And then yeah. she didn't. Quite, she had a shoulder injury coming into the the last Olympics. Yeah. and didn't do quite as well. Although I think she, I think she had a fourth or a fifth in one of the finals. So you know, fourth or fifth best in the world. That's at not too NEC, shabby. Right? Not too bad. Yeah, Australians can be a little. We're high achieving when it comes to sports, and we can now we've become a little accustomed to that. And it's not a good trait. There was a lot of backlash in the Australian media this year against our athletes. And there was even one time where one of our journalists, because there was a, a guy called uh, James Magnuson, the missile, and he was uh, the uh, number one ranked 100-meter uh, freestyler in the, in the world and ended up losing the final by 0.01 of a, a second. You know, So mm-hmm. in anyone's books, not, 
Yeah, it's not like he came last. No. He literally lost, lost the race by, you know, half a finger. By nothing. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. But in the lead up to the games, he was our, like, he was our lock. Yeah. For being, and he had that sort of, the same arrogance that Usain Bolt has, but Usain Bolt won. Yeah. And James Magnuson didn't by yeah. 0.01 of a second. So it wasn't him, but there was a, 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 one of our other swimmers had come second. And one of the Australian journalists poolside actually said to the swimmer, are you embarrassed by the silver? And I just remember at the time going, oh my God, are you embarrassed about being part of a dying profession? Are you yeah. embarrassed? Like, when are you ever going to be second best in the world at anything? Ouch. Like, seriously? Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm embarrassed that your father didn't come second on the duvet at home. Like, you were born. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, yeah. horrible. Oh, wow. Oh. So, uh, Stephanie Rice is, yes, incredibly attractive. She Have you uh, met her? I have met her. And she's very famous. I don't know if you follow her on Twitter, but she's very, very famous for posting uh, pictures of herself in bikinis and stuff like that on, on Twitter. I don't, so, actually. Right. No. Well, you should. I, I, <laughs> if you're that big a fan, uh, I, I would... Yeah. You know, I printed something out. I would uh, Google Stephanie Rice and Twitter. Yes. People listening to this, uh, you should Google her. Uh, she also did get in trouble, though, for... This is what I wrote out here. Yeah, you know it. She got in trouble for um, uh, getting... Uh, she uh, There was a, a football match, and yep. she tweeted, uh, suck on that faggots, I believe. That was the end That's line, it. wasn't it? Yes. You got the whole thing there? Oh, no, it just says, yeah, it was September two, 2010 uh, on Twitter. It was a... Australian Wallabies? Yeah, the Wallabies, which is our rugby union team. They defeated the South African Springboks. Yep, that's right. And uh, her Twitter message said, suck on that, faggots. Yep. And yeah, then she that, removed it, had to apologize. Yeah, that didn't go on down that well. A lot of her commercial endorsements. Yeah. <laughs> Jaguar. Yeah. Oh, she had, to, she had to return the car they'd given her. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Although Jaguar could have gone the other way and just gone... I've got a Jaguar. You don't. Suck on that, faggots. <laughs> but her boyfriend at the time was a guy called uh, Quade Cooper, who is a bonehead footballer who played for the Wallabies. I oh, he so, sounds like a real... Yeah. Yeah. What, what's his first name? Quade. Oh, <laughs> Quade Cooper? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like him already. No, exactly. <laughs> but to play rugby union, you've got to have names like that. Like, uh, there's quite a famous Australian rugby union player who was not a meathead, but his name's Sterling Mortlock. Oh, wow. You've got to have... That's your rugby union-style name. Wow. Yeah. So, Adam yes. West. Sterling. <laughs> she's very, she's very, very beautiful and, and, and very, very popular with the, uh, the magazines uh, at home. And if you want to... Uh, if you want to uh, also, if you're Googling uh, hot Australian sports people celebrities, mm-hmm. I would also uh, recommend that people uh, check out the hurdler Michelle Jenicky. Uh She was the one that has the unusual warm-up routine. It became a bit of a, uh, like a gift that went around the internet because <laughs> she has this unusual dance she does at the, the yes. start of the races. And yeah. it's, it's it, like, it, you know, it's, That's- I think she's in the latest Sports Illustrated. But, like, she's not really ever... Done that much sports wise, but <laughs> her warm up is so good. Oh, that the swimsuit issue, the yeah, brand new one. I believe that she might be. I uh, yeah, yeah. yeah they, they catch on to people like that. right. Yeah, yeah. That so Michelle really, Janicki re- aren't really famous for anything but being. Uh, I mean, what what was the tennis player's name? Uh, 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 Anna Konnikova. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, she's same deal there. Um, what was I? Uh, oh, I you you sort of mentioned some of them. I you know we have a uh, you know mutual uh, well an acquaintance a friend Brad Blanks. That's right. I know on the radio show that I work on it came up a little bit this morning. That's right. And uh, I always love the different uh, the slang terms. 
that he I, uses. And then you've been using some of them in our talk here. And then <laughs> I, well, I, feel, I think it's nice that you explain some of them afterwards. Right, well, I like trying to figure out what the hell you're talking about. Well, I, I definitely want to talk about this, but I will mention it's very funny because I was I was tweeting uh, Brad uh, because we had mentioned it on the radio show this morning. So I sent him a tweet, uh, you know, saying that his name had come up and blah, blah, blah. And he said, isn't it funny that two dairy farmers' sons, farmers' sons from, like, we're basically from the same, you know, vague area of Australia who barrack for the worst Australian rules football team in the competition. Like, our team that we barrack for has been in the competition for 110 years and has won the premiership, the grand final, once. Yeah. Like, only been in the grand final twice. Won it in 1954. As I used to say in my stand-up, uh, they won it so long ago that if I'd missed the grand final and wanted to see the replay, I would have had to wait another two years until television came to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that long ago. And he said, isn't it funny that we're talking about Minneapolis, you know, uh, radio? And it's and it, But it is... I mean, it's amazing how... You know, small the world is and how big the world it is, is absolutely in amazing. that regard. So, what are the slang terms? Well, I, would, I was going to say, you know, when you brought up about living like in a, a hotel room, I once visited uh, our friend Brad Blanks, who is a, uh, for people that listen to this who have no idea who that is, Google Brad Blanks, bradblanks.com. Very funny guy. He does a, uh, he's not a comedian, but he does like uh, celebrity reports, talk kind of a man on the street type of thing. He used to work at a radio station in New York City. Now he just sort of freelances and does that. He's and a on- lot of, uh, you know, if there's Australians, and hopefully there is Australians who've tuned into this, a lot of Australians will know him because he's a regular on uh, Hamish and, hey and Andy, and Andy yeah. which is you know, the biggest radio show in Australia. I've listened so. to their podcast uh, and heard him with them. So that's, I know about Hamish and Andy because of Brad. Yeah. But uh, I once went and visited him in New York and uh, stayed with him when he he lived in an apartment, not an apartment, in a hotel room. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was living full time in a hotel room. Right. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know his, you know he changed his, he changed his last name for uh, for uh, so, uh, Hollywood purposes. for Hollywood purposes. His real last name is Ennels, which sort of looks like Anals. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I remember, yeah, I think that was a good choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember going and checking into the uh, <clears throat> hotel, and he had left a key for for me. Yeah, the uh, I need a key for the uh, anal's room. <laughs> what sort of a hotel is this? <laughs> he doesn't live there anymore. Now he's a, he's a very uh, you know he's married and has kids. That's and, uh, right. Yeah, this was his uh, swing and single days. But uh, anyway, no, I, I don't really have an example. I just do. You, can you think of some some slang words that you use? That well, the one, uh, you know what the. The big one that I use all the time by accident is roots because, like, our version of, like, you know, shags or I can't even know what, what is the American version. What, what, what do Americans say if you were, like, having sex with someone? Like, if you were. Bang. Bang. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Because yeah. it's like, it's, it's less, like, I'll, you know, you need a term that's kind of. Like, you know, to root someone's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm. know, if you were saying that, like, you know, uh, did, you, did you get a root? It's very old fashioned slangy, mm-hmm. but it's kind of. It's not like did you fuck them, like yeah. which can be a bit more harsh, yeah. like yeah. And so bang, it's probably yeah, yeah. Did you bang them? Like yeah, yeah. I banged her. Yeah, that's kind of good. I like that. That's that's probably the equivalent. Um, Brad uses one. What he calls women birds. Birds. Yeah, that's that's di- a good bird. That comes from the the English. That, that's like oh, he gets that's that where from, that comes. Yeah, from. well, his wife is uh, yeah, English. Birds, but uh, I, you know, it's funny. They only it's only uh, most of the time people think. You know, they understand me, and then I would just say one thing. Oh, you know, I, there was one uh, when I first did uh, gigs in the states. Um, this was like ten years ago, I'm guessing, and uh, I was over to do Just for Laughs in Montreal, 
and uh, it was um, I did some gigs in New York on the on the way through, and it's the first time I'd ever done American gigs, and I was improvising. With, and this is what you realise early on is because I'd cleared all my material, you know, everything made sense in my material, but as soon as you improvise, you go back into your like the natural way you think right and you think in your own language mm-hmm. so i i was talking about uh something about george bush and someone reacted and i said i don't want to hang shit on your president now that hang shit is a, a term where you use all the time it's like uh um, talk bad about talk ta- bad about talk shit talk shit but it's not like hang shit kind of has a like, oh, you know, it, it's kind of affectionate. Like, we were hanging shit on Brad for being a, you know. Oh, yeah. We were just hanging shit on Brad for, you know, teasing living him. at a hotel. It's teasing. Yeah. Right? It's somewhere in between teasing and talking shit about. Okay. Like, it's, it's kind of in between those two things. Okay. So, it's a fun way of lightening, you know. I don't want to hang shit on him, but. Uh, yeah, dot, yeah. Dot, yeah, but he's, he, now I'm going to hang shit on him. Yeah, right? yeah. But the entire audience looked at me like. Like I was literally going to hang shit on him. Like, like I was some sort of defecation decorator, you know? The queer eye for the brown guy or whatever it is, you know? And so I remember that. Uh, yeah, I don't want to hang shit. So that's, that's one that springs to mind. Here we go. I was looking, so I was looking stuff up about you and uh, Survival of the Dumbest. Uh-huh. You wrote a book? Two books? Two books, yeah. Uh, I went on Amazon. Do you have any idea how much a paperback copy of Survival of the Dumbest is going for right now? Whew, well, it came out uh, about oh God, it came out about seven years ago or something, or eight years ago. So it's out of print, clearly. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna say not much. Uh, someone is selling a paperback copy, and this is the one, the lowest price, right? One hundred fifty-three dollars and sixty-eight cents. What? Yeah. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. I don't have. I don't. I didn't print that, that out. Person's but I, an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> All I'm saying is, it is not worth 153. dollars Do you have any copies, and could you undercut them and sell them for you know 75? The wor- you know what the worst thing is. No, I actually do have some copies of that one because someone the other day was asking me for a, a copy of my second book, Friendly Fire, and. I realized I had no copies of that book like at home. I've clearly given away all of them, but I do have some Survival of the Dumbest, so maybe I can sell that. I shouldn't tell people that I'm pretty sure you can still get it as an e-book for about $3. Ah! So. <laughs> I didn't search the e-book. Yeah. And then, yeah, uh, well, Friendly Fire, $49.70. Right. Yeah. So obviously that's more available still. <laughs> yeah, there must be a few more of those around. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I thought you'd like to I thought you'd yeah, kick out I'm, of that. I feel like I'm, my comedy is much more valuable now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we better wrap this up. Uh, what are, so people, you have like a million, zillion of followers on Twitter, so... Uh, will underscore Anderson, if people want to follow me on Twitter. Yes. Uh, you will get some jokes that you don't understand, because I still do tweet a lot of Australian news and Australian jokes and stuff like that, but I, I tend to find that North American people, most of them quite enjoy... Like, you know, seeing those sort of things. Yeah. And I, obviously, I tweet a lot about, you know, being over here and all those sort of things as well. And um, I have a, a podcast. It's called TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P. Um, it's been on hiatus uh, for a little while, but uh, by the, you know, it's going to be back soon, sooner rather than later. So uh, if people want to check that out. Is that on cool iTunes? Too. Yeah, you yep. can get it. Yeah, but TOFOP.com, uh, you can find that as well. It's a, It was named after Russell Crowe used to have a band called TOFOG, 30 uh, Odd Footer Grunt. Uh, which he then changed uh, to uh, the ordinary fear of God. Yeah. Uh, so that he could keep the same Tofog merchandise. Oh, is that why? Yeah, okay. they have the same. Uh, I was trying to figure that initials. out. To, yeah, okay. And that always fascinated me. So yeah. when we f- first started doing the podcast and we we're trying to come up with a name, we, we called it 30 Odd Foot a Pod. 
We never use that name. We always just called it Tofop. Okay. But, uh, okay. If you've never heard it, there's 83 episodes of it up online, and there's going to be some new ones coming this year. So um, that'd be cool if you wanted to check that out. Awesome. Thank you. All right, that's it. That's Ryan, it. Uh, yes, Good. Will, thank you very, very much. My absolute pleasure. Awesome.